Hello everyone, welcome to King's Talk presented by Cap City Crown. This is Tony. With me, as always, we have John. I'm just going to cut straight to the chase right now. The Kings are on a three-game losing streak. In the time we've last spoken, they've played a whole five-game road trip, have gone two and three. They they beat the Pistons, they beat the Hornets in back-to-back games. Great. But then they lose to the 76ers without the reigning MVP, Joel Embiid, in just a very disappointing fashion. It was a, it was a blowout loss. Uh, the Kings didn't really put up much of a fight. Then you lose to the Bucks in a game that you send to OT, in a game where you missed three free throws in the last 15 seconds, and in a game you let Damian Lillard go up the court in four seconds and hit a 35-foot three to win it. And then after that, <laughs> you, you try to pick yourself back up, you go to Phoenix, you just absolutely dominate Phoenix in the first 40 minutes of the game. And then in the last eight, you give up a 22-point lead and lose. John, three-game losing streak. I, I'm assuming the first one of the season. But, I mean, it just Kings just seem to have really gotten off track. Really ever since that Portland game that they lost on the road. And then to follow it up with that loss against the Hornets at home. It just seems like stuff has started to spiral downhill for the team. I don't know. What, what are your reactions with all this? Is it time to overreact? March? I think the Kings are a playing team. <laughs> They're kind of mediocre. <laughs> See, I'm trying to keep it silly here because it's just like the Kings, it's like we've said three of the last four podcasts probably. This team is not going to, maybe they can get past the first round. I'm not even sure they could. Neither. <laughs> and they would have to go through the playing tournament if the season ended today. Who knows if they'd make it out of that? It's just clear that the Kings need to make a move. That's very clear. Because of these last three games in particular, which, you know, when the Kings beat Detroit and Charlotte on the road back to back, there was room to maybe be a little happy about what the Kings were doing. But with the three games that were following that, Philadelphia, Milwaukee, and Phoenix, it made no sense to get ahead of yourself. The games against the Pistons and the Hornets, those are not the tests that the Kings need to be passing. I mean, those are the ones they should be passing, and they did. They did a good job, despite the fact they did give up 47 points to Detroit in the first quarter and gave them confidence and made the game tougher than it needed to be. But there are all sorts of things to be concerned about from the last three games, whether it's losing to Philadelphia without, like you said, the reigning MVP, whether it's, again, getting crushed by missed free throws in critical moments, or even if you do keep the turnovers down, and the Kings have had a couple of games over the last few weeks where they have like 20 turnover games where they keep the turnovers down against Milwaukee for most of it, but then come up with two critical ones late in the game as they lose in overtime, or dropping a game to Phoenix where they played the first half extremely well and then completely collapsed, giving up, I think, a 32-8 to run to Phoenix as they went small in the fourth quarter. There's just so much to be concerned about, and I think a lot of it can be summed up in Mike Brown's outburst, but... Even before we get to that, I really want to hone in on one thing that really was apparent in two of these last three games. It's that DeMontis Sabonis is not as effective, and this might be obvious, but he's not as effective against smaller lineups. And Philadelphia all game without Embiid, for the most part, had Tobias Harris guarding DeMontis Sabonis. And I think when he wasn't guarding him, it was Nicholas Batum. And they did a really good job of collapsing and bothering him. Sometimes it kind of looked a little bit like that Warriors series. And then against Phoenix, Kevin Durant plays the five in the final, I think, seven, eight minutes of the game. And it's more of the same. In fact, Mike Brown took DeMontis Sabonis out of the game 
for a couple possessions. It was interesting that without their best playmaker, they came up with two turnovers and Mike Brown quickly put Sabonis back in there. But that didn't make much of a difference because as Mike Brown continuously pointed out last night, almost like it was the biggest takeaway from this game, which should be very concerning, is that the Kings don't really have an answer when there's five shooters on the floor against them. Because as Mike Brown said, you can't just switch one through five because you can't put Sabonis on a guy like Booker. So he said that they had to blitz. And you've seen the Kings blitz a lot this season. You've seen the Kings blitz a lot on this road trip. They even blitzed Bogdanovich in Detroit a little bit in the third quarter. They tried to do it to Tyrese Maxey. They clearly tried to do it to Damian Lillard, except funnily enough, as you pointed out, not on that last game winner uh, where he just grazed up the court with barely any pressure. And then they obviously tried to do it against Booker in Phoenix. And sometimes it comes up with good results, but it's one of those things where you when you constantly have to do that, where you have to do the blitz, which forces even more multiple efforts, which, yeah, the Kings have done well at, but how how often can you do that? How, how sustainable is that? And you're constantly having to rotate. It just makes no sense. And it's always going to set up for situations where you're going to lose games late. The Kings have an issue with certain matchups where they just can't really rely so much on Sabonis. And if Sabonis is going to be nullified to at least some degree, you need to have guys that step up. And Fox is good. Monk is good. Murray can't really like carry so much weight on his own. But like the Kings have a bunch of bunch of guys out there that are going to hardly help. I mean, like what's Herder and Barnes going to do without Sabonis having free reign to give them DHO opportunities or look for them as cutters and stuff like that? It just it creates all sorts of issues. And it also raises the question of what are the Kings going to do in the playoffs? Teams are probably going to try to exploit that aspect of things. And you have a team like Phoenix that will be able to play small. They're probably going to be more beneficial playing small. You could probably point out other teams in the playoffs that could do that to them. So I think this is a big issue because the Kings may have a pretty strong foundation to their core in terms of Fox, Sabonis, Monk, and Murray. But even that doesn't seem strong enough. And the outside pieces really exacerbate and point that out. I mean, the the small lineup thing, I think, has to be a huge takeaway from these last three games, at least in two of the last three games. Because... He is second in the league in triple doubles, is clearly playing out of his mind most of the time. But it, there are certain matchups where that can just get taken away from you. And then what you have? I mean, how much does that concern you? Just the Sabonis and the small lineup thing and the fact that the Kings can't really make an adjustment to that. Oh, man, I mean, it concerns me more <laughs> the more you explain it. I, to me, all this is just screaming at me. It's like a change needs to happen. The Kings need some more defense. And I think more importantly, and not to go too much off topic about your Sabonis, but I I mean, it just says that change needs to happen. They just, I think I, <laughs> they need what those people call a dog or like an energizer um, to get this team amped up. I mean, just in general, that, that the loss of the Suns really stung, right? But even like the loss of the Sixers, I get it. Like, they exploited Sabonis, and uh, he doesn't do well in small lineups. But, man, I mean, take advantage of a Sixers team. You play the Sixers once at home, or sorry, once on the road at their home in the season, and you, you're fortunate enough to play them without Joel Embiid, and you lose by what? Close to 20? I don't even know. I turned it off. It was that bad. I mean, to me, this is just it's just all screaming to me that a trade needs to happen. And if it doesn't, it's, they're going to look at a first-round exit, and major changes will need to be made this offseason. And for the Sabonis one specifically, it's just they need better defenders. They need better guys who can rotate. 
again, not just blitz the whole time. If Sabonis gets switched onto someone, I, I, I mean, that's not news, right? They needed defense. Like, that's clearly the biggest issue. But now that they've lost three straight, they have not really had the greatest, like, last 30 days, it seems like. I mean, they win the games they need to. Like, the really bad teams. But even then, they haven't, I guess, with the Trailblazers and Hornets. I don't know. It's just some something needs to change. It's this this construction of the team. It's, I mean, I think all eyes go to Herter and Barnes, right? It's They're just not... They're not the two pieces that are going to bring this team together. And I think they're just hurting us more than they're helping us. And granted, they've had decent games in the past couple, but they just still lack a lot. And, you know, not they don't always show up in big moments either. So, yeah, I think kind of just coming out and drawing a big circle around everything right now. A lot of this can be summarized in the fact that Mike Brown had another outburst similar, I guess, at least similar, it seems, in strategy probably coming from him to the outburst he had in Toronto last December, which funnily enough, both the Toronto game last year and the Milwaukee game this year where Brown got ejected in what has seemed to be an attempt to fire up his team, though there were some other factors in the in the Bucks outburst. It is funny that both of those games last season and this season came after the Kings visited Philadelphia. But Mike Brown tried to pull the same card out of his pocket this season with that outburst. And I think it's it, it worked to a certain degree last year. They pulled out the win in Toronto, and I think they won the final game of their road trip and technically two of their next three following that. But they didn't win in Milwaukee. There were factors, obviously, with Mike Brown's concerns with the consistency of the referees and the officials. He obviously, to the news of everyone around the league, basically brought out his laptop in the post-game presser and pointed out the inconsistencies. And that's all fine and dandy. And, you know, he he clearly ate, I think, what is it, $50,000 because of that mm-hmm. in terms of a fine. And, and that's all good. You know, like an attorney doing a closing argument, I thought that was funny that he had the laptop out there. But everything in, in the way he, he, he responded to that situation felt shrouded in desperation. It sounds like he knows he's running out of answers with this roster. What more can he do? I mean, you could sense it in the in the postgame presser that he is frustrated. And I, we've never seen him like that before, at least in his time with the Kings. Uh, it, it, it's Again, it just seems like there's an amount of desperation and that he's kind of recognized that the roster as it stands now, as he shrinks the rotation over the last two games, he's only played nine guys, you know, I think he's kind of hit a wall with what he can do with this roster. It really underlines the fact that this team just is not going to get where they want to go as they stand now and as it's constructed right now. Yeah, I think he has seen that. And I think we all kind of knew that going into this season. or We we at least talked about it early on this year, especially the defense. You know, I mean, I think that was I think that's the biggest topic is that if the Kings want to hold their hat on something, they're going to have to hold it on defense. If the threes aren't falling, if their offense isn't clicking, because, you know, having a 120 offensive rating, is, you know, it just isn't sustainable and they're getting figured out a little. But they, you know, Mike Brown really wanted to make that shift to defense. And he's tried. And it's just, you know, I mean, I'm not saying defense is the only fault they have, considering they're last in free throw shooting. And turnovers have been an issue as well. But, I mean, we've said it since the beginning with this defensive change where it's like they really want to push that more, which Brown has every right to do. 
They just don't have the personnel to do it. And I think you're right. He's running out of answers or ways he can push his team to be better. The defense is a great point on your end because think about it over, I think it was in the Detroit game and the Hornets game and even maybe the Pelicans game before that. He tried going a little bit more to some defenders. Obviously, he tried to go with Duarte. Duarte kind of played himself out. He kind of ran into some foul issues again. And also, it's not like he was performing very well on the offensive end. It still seems like he's a little uncertain of things. Like when you see Kevin Herter in the offense, things are a lot more seamless. His decision making is a lot more decisive. But, you know, he tried Duarte. That didn't really work out the way it potentially could have, though that's probably not to anyone's major surprise. You know, he tried to use. Juan Descano Anderson a lot more. Even saw him go to Colby Jones a little bit. But now over the last couple of games, he's again shrunk the rotation to nine guys. There's no backup point guard. He's not going to Keon Ellis or Colby Jones off the bench. He's usually sticking just to Monk as the backup point guard, which with that and the fact that Vizenkov has been included in this in this nine-man rotation, I mean, this is him resorting to what the Kings' strengths are right now, which is offense is their best bet, which I think is a pretty clear, implicit admission that he just doesn't have that that roster that can do what he wants defensively. And that, again, only underlines the fact that the Kings, probably this trade deadline, or at the very least, I guess, in the offseason, though you don't really want to have to phone it in for the rest of this year and have a first or second round exit or whatever. But at some point in the near future, with the clock beginning to tick in terms of a championship window, They're going to have to make a move. And that is just so clear. It's been a constant point over the last couple of weeks. And that's a great way to pivot to more trade talk as trade season only heats up with, what, like three weeks until the trade deadline? I think it's on February 8th. Mm -hmm. So getting close. And obviously, it's like you you talk about, well, who can the Kings go get? Well, a guy now that's completely off the table, even though the talks had totally slowed down and never really seemed like they were going to open up quite to the extent that it felt like it it had been for a split second. But Siakam, Pascal Siakam, gets traded to the, the Pacers today as we record. And, I mean, we could probably just zero in on that, talk about that a little bit, because, you know, the Kings were tied to Siakam. That trade kind of fell through. I think in terms of kind of summarizing why, part of it is the Kings had a lot of trouble getting a deal done without, including Murray. They also were skeptical, according to Kevin O'Connor, that due to Siakam's lack of commitment to re-signing a long-term deal this summer, it put into question what assets the Kings wanted to give up alongside guys like Kevin Herter and Harrison Barnes and even Davion Mitchell. And so that seemed like a major roadblock. And so he gets traded to Indiana, though. They give up three first-round picks. They don't really give up much in the way of young players. I mean, they got their three first-round picks. Obviously, they gave up Ananobi for mainly two key young players. But this one was centered around the picks. Three first-round picks, something maybe the Kings could have done. But the other factor now that's really interesting and kind of makes you go like, wait, why didn't the Kings do this is the fact that uh, reportedly, according to ESPN, Siakam is expected to be eager, end quote, to sign a long-term deal this summer with Indiana. So it just seems so odd to me. I mean, what was the issue here? And I know that this is so hard to tell (laughs) in terms of like, it's hard to speculate, but it feels like one of those things where it's like, wait, if the Pacers are doing this and there's a chance he can sign, why couldn't the Kings have done that? Yeah, this Siakam situation has been so confusing over the last like two weeks. It's like... That report came out. It's like the Kings are a serious suitor, a serious suitor for Siakam. 
And then Siakam comes to sack that same night and plays the Kings. Important note, too, just not sorry to interrupt, but important no, okay. note, too, is that not only was Siakam in Sacramento, but Toronto's entire front office was as well. Well, yeah, and that is a good point. And like right before tip off, it's like, yeah, no, the Kings aren't, aren't aren't interested anymore. Well, did they talk to him? Like maybe that's what happened because it's like he's in sack. Like you might as well just go up to the guy and like start talking to him because then the next report came out. It's like, well, the Kings are trying to trade Harrison Barnes and like a package centered around Barnes, which is like, okay, it's probably not going to get like a deal for Siakam done. And then it was like, well, Sacramento was hesitant to trade for Siakam because he wasn't going to resign. And then like more reports came out, like Sacramento is still interested in trading for Siakam, even if he won't resign. And then it's like, well, Siakam wants to test out free agency. And there were so many reports and like a couple of contradicting each other. So, so it is kind of weird that, I mean, one, I don't think McNair would have traded three first round picks. I mean, the Pacers do have three first round picks to trade because they have two this season so i mean i I don't know i don't think siakam i guess unless you can resign him like the pacers might now i have no idea it's it's all confusing to me the siakam maybe he was using the kings as leverage as many teams and players have done i don't know i just don't think anyway the kings would have made the trade Uh, even two first round picks for siakam it's just all weird it's the siakam i'm kind of just glad it's over with pacers got him our like mini rival now, our East Coast rival, even though they're kind of <laughs> East Coast, <laughs> but uh, Eastern Conference, I should say, rival. But I, I, I'm just kind of glad it's in the rear view. Well, just to me on the on the Siakam thing, if I had to give my hypothesis, what this whole thing was about was that the quote unquote lack of commitment from Siakam to sign a long term extension. And there were also news about him potentially wanting to rejoin I think Toronto maybe I think I think I read that you know that whole aspect could have very well been Siakam and his party kind of working with the Raptors here because if you have that going on okay we'll keep that in mind as the the Raptors field some offers get some offers see what happens there's a lack of commitment yada 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 well now if something in private as you've put in your initial offer it's like oh hey you know what actually Siakam might be open to signing with you. You know, I mean, that feasibly could have been the case now that the trade's been made and the report almost instantly afterwards was that he is expected to be eager to resign with the Pacers this summer. You know, that could have very well been the case. And now that is thrown in there. Well, that offer now has to be increased, doesn't it? Like, well, Mm -hmm. and now it seems like he might be open to signing it. So I don't know, offer might go up a little bit. That might have pushed the button on three first round picks rather than two. You know, true. No, and I think you make a great point by saying that Indiana did have two first round picks to get rid of this year. That's a key factor. And that's a that's a key luxury that the Kings didn't have. And I think that all kind of points to the fact that, yeah, I just don't I I think your assessment's right. I don't think McNair would have given up the three first round picks. And I'm just assuming that that's kind of how everything went. It was just a way to drive up value. I mean, that's the goal. Why wouldn't that be the goal? And it's feasible to see how that how that strategy would have worked and it seemed like it did and it was all about the draft picks clearly because Toronto got Bruce Brown who won a championship with Denver last year uh, but he's 27 they got Jordan Wara who's 25 you know a forward that has shot from three but is having a pretty bad year I think he's only shooting like 30% from three and has only played 18 games and then they got Kira Lewis Jr. from New Orleans who I'm not really familiar with 
but doesn't look like he has a lot of size and whatnot. But it was all about the picks. Three first-round picks, two in 2024 and one in 2026. And yeah, the Pacers are just in a completely different situation in terms of the draft capital they had at their uh, disposal. So that just seems like that is the conclusion I would make. Yeah, I mean, it was the draft capital was definitely the push. Three first-round picks. I mean, that's a good haul for most players in this league. So, and then Stock is a two-time All-Star NBA champion. Probably an All-NBA somewhere, second, third team kind of guy. So, and don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure he's got that award under his belt. So, like I said, I'm glad it's past us. I, I mean... As as yeah. the reports kept going, it just seemed less and less likely. It, like, it really got our hopes up, and then it like really dwindled within a day, uh, which is kind of funny. But, you know, who, who else is out there? Um, do you have any updates on targets, who's available, who's not? Who do you think the Kings can get? Will they make a trade? Yeah, I mean, that I think will they make a trade is probably with Siakam gone. Obviously, the likelihood of that is maybe a little lower because that's one less candidate that would really make a key difference. I think two guys that maybe come to mind are Laurie Markkanen and Jeremy Grant, but you know, the, the jazz reportedly, I think according to Wojnowski today, Tuesday or Wednesday, rather reported that the jazz want to continue to build around Markkanen and he's expected, or he's a strong candidate. I think Wojnowski put it uh, to have a, his contract renegotiated and extended going forward. Plus, you also factor in the the whole idea that if the Kings in Marcanon were gonna the Kings in Utah were gonna make a deal for Marcanon, it probably would have centered around some swap, including Murray or something like that. Even if it didn't, we just finished talking about how many draft picks McNair would be open to trading to get a guy. And if you just so focus mostly on the Murray thing, I mean James Ham and his appearance on Michael Scotto's podcast last week said that everybody in the front office of the Kings believes Keegan Murray is going to be better than Mark Kanan. They believe he's a late bloomer whose body's going to develop and, you know, they're looking towards a pretty considerable jump over the close of this season and into next season, which I think is fair to say. Jeremy Grant. Also a quick note on Laurie Markkinen. Sure. The Jazz are nine and one in their last ten. Oh. And they've they've climbed up to the ninth seed. They're two games behind the Kings. Like they're They've been playing really good basketball, too. That's a key point. That is a key point. Because, like, last year, the Jazz weren't very good. But now, like, they're showing that they can, you know, maybe make some noise in the West. So, And that never really seemed all that out of the question. I mean, they got off to a pretty bad start. But what they did last season and what Will Hardy has shown he can, he's, he's been able to do with that, with that franchise, with, you know, whatchamacallit, Danny Ainge running the show, they always felt like there was that, that promise – even if they got off to a bad start, was ever really going anywhere for good. I mean, and Mark Hannon is the type of guy that 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 guy could easily be an MVP candidate. He's like a candidate easily to be a first-team All-NBA guy. I mean, he's such a versatile player and, and, and has a lot of skill and size, obviously. So that makes sense. It would almost be it'd be so stupid for the Jazz to, to get rid of Mark Hannon because it's just like one of those things where it's like, what are you going to consist constantly kind of do this you know, carousel where you're going to get this talent and then trade them and all this stuff. And it would have never made sense. That, that honestly all, all pans out the way that, that most people would probably have expected at the beginning of the season. I never really bought into any of the Mark Cannon rumors 
But the next guy, Jeremy Grant, another guy that's been connected to the Kings pretty much since two summers ago, uh, maybe even before that. Apparently, despite the fact that Portland is Portland, they reportedly aren't seriously entertaining any offers, according to Jake Fisher of Yahoo Sports. So that's a versatile four. That's off the table, essentially, for the Kings. I want to mention another guy because Fisher did note that uh, Malcolm Brogdon is a completely different situation and they are fielding offers for him. And so kind of just pulling off into this little cul-de-sac for a second, would Malcolm Brogdon be a guy that the Kings would be interested in, in, in bringing in? I mean, just from the standpoint that if you're trying to upgrade, let's say Kevin Herter, I mean, obviously Jeremy Grant is an upgrade for Harrison Barnes. It's a bigger upgrade. It'd be one that you could kind of run with for a few years and make a run at a championship. But Brogdon, maybe a lesser impact piece, but still an impact piece. A guy that has a 6'11 wingspan at 6'4", six six foot four, 41% three-point shooter this year, has clearly played at a high level in the in the NBA throughout his career, was six-man of the year last year. You could bring him in. You could either have him come off the bench, be that six-man again, and have Monk start, or you could keep Monk as your highly dynamic six-man and start Brogdon. Does it make any sense to go after Brogdon and... I mean, I I don't know if it's necessarily a, a target you go out and get, but if there aren't as many options to upgrade your roster, does Brogdon make sense at 31 years old? I, I don't know his contract off the top of my head, do you know? Uh, I'll just pull it up. But personally, I feel like Malcolm Brogdon in this camp is probably like, all right, like move me. <laughs> like he got traded there from the Celtics last year. Um, and before that, was he on the Bucks before that, or did he have like a little? I want to say he he was with the Pacers, I think, before that. Yeah, you're right. He was with the Pacers. Or I guess weren't play with Sabonis. Yeah, with Sabonis, you're right. And they had a couple playoff years, so or at least one, I believe so. But right? uh, the contract, I have the contract here, by the way. Yeah, he's making twenty two and a half million the next two seasons, and then as an unrestricted free agent in 2025, when he'll be 33 years old. Yeah, so I don't know. I mean, you, you he's sixth man of the year. You have one of those and Malik Monk, maybe not, maybe this year. But, um, I mean, I don't know. He, he's definitely interesting. His defense, I heard, isn't the greatest. I mean, he, he was a lot better when he was in Milwaukee when he was a little younger. Um, mm-hmm. I heard he's not as good as he used to be, not very good off of screens. But, I mean, 6'11", definitely he adds to that versatility that the Kings need, a great three-point shooter, a great scorer. I mean, I think for the right price, I mean, for sure, bring in Malcolm Brogdon. And like I was saying, yeah, I don't think he's a guy who's – he's probably trying to get off Portland on back to a winning team probably sooner than later. He's still probably going to be worth at least a first-round pick, and I don't think Brogdon is worth – maybe if he is a better fit with the team, but I think you can save that first-round pick for like that perfect fit, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think my argument for Brogdon would be, okay, he's not a great defender, but I think given being in Mike Brown's system with Mike Brown's coaching, his level of experience and his length and the versatility that that provides, I think I would bet on him being more consistently impactful on the defensive end than Kevin Herter. For sure. Is that enough to go ahead and go for a guy that's past the age of 30, making almost $23 million a year. And you might, like you said, give up a first, have to give up a first round pick to get him. 
I think it's really interesting. I think it ends up and brings up an interesting conversation. But I think a Brogdon type move might be uh, if they did something like that, it might be them just kind of going, oh, we need to make a move and it might not be the right one in the long, long haul. Mm -hmm. So I agree with you there. Before we get back to potential trade candidates, one factor that's really interesting is that Kevin Herter and and Harrison Barnes, as you've noted, have been playing. At least they they played a little bit better over the last couple of games. I think, you know, Herter since kind of coming back into the starting lineup and I mean, he came back into the starting lineup, had that little ankle injury, whatever. But after that whole situation, he's been playing a little bit better. I think his his you know defense has has looked better. He hasn't had as many blow buys or anything like that. I wonder how much that had to do with getting a little bit of a break, getting taken out of the starting lineup, having that ankle situation. How much did he get to kind of reset? And then that raises the question of when are the wheels going to start falling off again? But nevertheless, he's been playing better. I think that's a key factor considering the fact that Michael Scoto on that podcast with James Hamm noted that the Bulls are doing intel on Herder to see what was going on with him this season. So that must lead you to believe that other teams are doing that too because Herder's had a weird year. He has promise and upside, clearly. So they want to see what's going on. So if that's the case, the way he's been playing over the last couple of games is definitely promising and probably helps his value a little bit. I think Harrison Barnes is another interesting one because he is a is a guy that has had his ups and downs this season in terms of being present and making an impact and not doing that. But I think he had a really good game in Milwaukee, had a great first half in Phoenix. The offense dropped off a little bit in the second half against the Suns, but he did close out the game and had some pretty decent efforts in trying to defend some of those Phoenix stars and contribute to to the team's defense against them. But he's been playing decently, and apparently, you know, if the Bulls are looking at Herder, Barnes also has a as a guy has a team interested in them too. Reportedly, Houston is interested in Barnes for his shooting and presumably his size and defensive versatility. Well, off of that, in terms of Houston being interested, I guess a guy that has been talked about a lot online in terms of relating to that. Because you, you would obviously ask, well, where what would uh, the Kings get from Houston? And a guy they could get is a young player in Tari Eason, who's in his second season, was always kind of looked at as a guy that could be a key role player and a big impact player off the bench, given the fact that he did that in college. 6'8", long, versatile, athletic, high motor, good defensive skills with offensive upside. From what I remember, that could be a guy that you could bring in and definitely make a difference and maybe even upgrade over Barnes and the fact that you hear constantly and rightfully so in a lot of ways that fans in a lot of circles want to see Trey Lyles start. You get a guy like Tari Eason. Tari Eason plugs in as kind of that backup versatile four. It sets up a situation where you could technically upgrade over Barnes by getting Eason, starting Lyles. Lyles is a great value. I mean, he only makes $8 million a year. Teams would you know, people that don't pay attention to the Kings would scoff at that idea. But I think anybody who watches the Kings knows that you'd have a guy that could help out in a lot of ways on the glass, shooting, whatnot with, with Lyles in there. I mean, he often closes games anyways, given the age, the upside, the positional fit and the, 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 the size of the guy. I mean, that is one that you'd definitely be interested in making a trade for, don't you think? Atari I mean, Eason would be great. 22 years old. I think he'd be great giving up Barnes for him. <laughs> we'll see. I mean, it seems like that's the only guy Houston would want at the moment that they're interested in, at least. But 
I don't see the Kings trading for stars on teams that are trying to rebuild or possibly rebuild. I see I see them more doing like a swap at this deadline, like realistically, like teams that are st- like probably around where the Kings are, seventh seed, maybe, you know, they're they're struggling a little, maybe they think they can be a little better. Let's swap out some pieces. And I think that's why Barnes and Herder get brought up in conversation so much too. Even though there are most tradable pieces, there are also pieces that you can plug in on current playoff teams and they can probably still be playoff teams, right? I think a good trade scenario or like a player, and it's again, like, would you trade with this team? But like Golden State Warriors, Andrew Wiggins. Wiggins helped the Warriors bring a championship uh, a couple of seasons ago. Good defender. He's definitely been off his game this year. And I, a lot of people are, are saying a change in scenery might do him well. I mean, you can say the same about Barnes or Herter, right? And just, you know, swap him and maybe something works out because it's clearly not working out there. Another team, again, probably not the most popular trade place, but I mean, the Lakers, they're struggling. They have some pieces the Kings can probably get. Uh, Rui Hachimura could work on this team. Maybe send Barnes or Herter down their way and just maybe just make a personnel change. Not the biggest one, but like just like we're seeing about Herter, like he probably just needs a little bit of a scenery change. Well, you can say that about other players in this league that are struggling on teams that are underperforming. So I, I like when we're talking about all these trades and the more I think about it with the trade deadline getting closer and closer, I see that to be like the most realistic. And I think Tari Easton for Harrison Barnes kind of fits in that. So the Rockets are overperforming this year. So or overachieving, I should say. So I don't see that out of the realm of possibility. But I think for like those those bad like those good players on bad teams like the Grants, even the Brogdons, like they're gonna they're rebuilding teams. They don't want Harrison Barnes. They don't want Kevin Herter. Yeah. You have to give up draft like considerable draft capital to get them to eat that money. Yeah. So I think those are the teams to really keep your eye on. Even even the like the Bulls. I mean they, they've they're a playing team right now. Kevin Herter maybe get Tory Craig and someone else out of that deal like. This maybe just a little bit of a swap. Maybe the Bulls need shooting. Well, we need length. And sometimes that's all you have to do. That'd be interesting. I think McNair will pull off something. It's just not going to be as spectacular as a Siakam or a Mark Cannon, So, Yeah, I think I think that's a good point. I think Easton makes a lot of sense. Um, that one really comes clear into focus. Something with the Bulls obviously could happen. I mean, I don't know if the like, could the Kings... Maybe this is too much of a fantasy land scenario, but could the Kings trade Barnes in a second or two seconds to Houston for Eason? Trade Herter? I mean, you can get Caruso somehow, but that might have to require a first-round pick. But maybe there's a world where the Kings make a couple of more moderately-sized moves to get a pretty sizable improvement and set themselves up to still make another big move this offseason. I think that that's certainly a possibility. Yeah. especially when we kind of move down the list here to the guy that is probably the only big name guy that the Kings could go after. And hearkening back to James Ham's appearance on Michael Scotto's podcast, he was asked about Kuzma, whether that was a possibility. Obviously, Kuzma this past offseason was somebody that the Kings were talking to. Seemed like there was progress in those talks, but I guess the, the conversations kind of went blank for a week plus. And ultimately, the Kings went with Barnes, but Kuzma's always been someone connected with them, and Ham still believes 
that Kuzma is a viable option for the Kings. And his, his main rationale behind that is the fact that Kyle Kuzma's contract that he signed with the Wizards this offseason is front-loaded, meaning it, it, it regresses in price year by year. So with that, you'd be getting a guy that you know has star power. It's getting paid a lot, but it would regress year by year as you need to pay you know, Sabonis's contract, Fox's contract, you know, you'd be paying Murray at one point, you'll, you'll have to pay Monk this offseason, sets up for a financial situation where you can improve while still having some financial flexibility as time goes on. Makes a lot of sense. Also, another factor that can make it interesting is that Tyus Jones is there. He's got a tradable contract, I think about $14 million a year. And I think he's on a. I think his it expires after this season too. I think it's on a just a one year deal. I, I believe so. So that even increases the fact that the Wizards, who are historically bad team this year, especially on the defensive end, there's no reason why they would want to keep him going forward. So you could maybe pull off a trade to get Kuzma and get Tyus Jones, and that could set up for a situation where maybe you move Monk to the starting lineup. You got Jones as your sixth man. In the guard position, you got Kuzma starting for Barnes. You've just technically upgraded Herder and Barnes in a trade situation. But the question becomes, how much are you upgrading with Kuzma, and is it in the right areas? Are you sold on any idea of moving to Kuzma? I don't know. It's The contract kind of scares me. If it was like a one-year deal, I'd be like, sure. Maybe even a two-year. He's still got three years left after this year on his contract. I don't know though. I, Kuzma is just interesting. It's, it's, I think personally, I mean, he was decent on the Lakers and he seemed, he was seen more bought into defense in LA with LeBron and seemed like a, an important piece in a way when they won that championship during the, the bubble. I think, I mean, ever since then, he was kind of giving the reins of a crappy Wizards team. And I mean, why not? Who, who else is there? To, you know, to, I mean, Bradley Beal was. Until this season, I suppose, but he seemed like he was hurt a lot. And Kuzma is a capable scorer, and probably you know thought playing defense is hard. But I think it, it Kuzma has played decent defense and is a versatile guy, versatile athletic forward. He can probably guard the small and the power forward. Not the best stretch option, but he can hit de- hit him decent from the corners, and at least he can score too. Like we we talk about Murray, and I get it. Murray's you know probably going to be a lot better next year. But Kuzma, at least for the rest of this season in the playoffs, can be that legit third scoring option that the Kings don't really have at the moment. And going forward, maybe he can go back to, I don't know if he'll want to, but that third, fourth scoring option behind Murray and maybe get a little more out of his defense. And then getting Tyus Jones for the rest of the year would be pretty good too. It's just like, can you get anyone better going forward? I mean, you wanted him in the offseason. Like, what's the difference now? And who are you going to get next year if you get rid of Barnes? You know, say say if you say if you get rid of Barnes's contract and you need to, you need to pick someone up in the offseason, like is there going to be someone better? Is there going to be someone better to trade for? That's where the Kings really have to start like figuring it out. He just he just makes a lot of sense, but he's just kind of scary at the same time, right? You 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 worry about his defense. Yeah. You worry about how committed he is to winning and not stat batting. But I mean, he has a championship. So, and played a, a, an important role on that Lakers team. So, I don't know. I mean, I would say I would say this. It's definitely, I think Ham is right to say that it's definitely a possibility. And it's up to the Kings to do the due diligence to figure out whether or not it would work to the level that it, they, they need, really. And it can. I think it definitely can, and it also can't. It depends on a few things. 
I mean, obviously he's got the the tools to defend. Has he done it in in Washington? Not necessarily. But I would cut him a lot of slack because Washington is a defense that since he's been there, I think his first year there, they were bottom five in the league. They were bottom 10 the following year, last year. And then this season, they're like one of the most historically abysmal defenses ever in the NBA. So how much is a defensive culture like that, which is to say really not much of a defensive culture, what does that have to do with him being motivated on that end? Whereas by contrast, you'd be getting him with Mike Brown, a guy that's really all about defense, a guy that would really allow him, you know, they'd give Kuzma his offense in a lot of ways, but you'd have to imagine they'd be really hyping him up as a defender. And I think Kuzma is a guy that just to contrast him with someone like Zach Levine, I mentioned, I think when we talked about Zach Levine a couple of weeks ago, that there was a article in the Chicago Sun-Times about Billy Donovan putting out a, a film session for his team after some big defensive mistakes, especially late in a game, led to a loss. And Levine was asked about the mistakes in that game. And he said, oh, I didn't really think there were that many mistakes. He clearly had some issue coming to terms with the fact that the defense wasn't that good. And he's always kind of been a little delusional about how good of a defender he is. Kuzma, by contrast, on this terrible defensive team, has been asked extensively, obviously. I mean, it's a huge topic there in Washington that this is a terrible defensive team. And I mean, he comes at it not like in a way that's like, oh, he's super motivated on the defensive end, but he's very level-headed about it. He understands that the defense is terrible and that it needs to be better and that you need defense to win. I mean, he's, he's quoted as saying stuff like that. And the demeanor that he has with that does suggest that he, he knows the importance of that end in, in winning. And it, it's so hard to ever really kind of like put your best foot forward on that end of the floor when you're on these terrible teams defensively with no defensive culture, with very little motivation and actually having a chance to win anything. So I think getting him on a team like the Kings, the situation they're in with the head coach that has a justifiable desire to improve the defensive end and has, has proven that, you know, whether it was with the, with the Warriors or some of those Cavs teams or back in his time with San Antonio, I mean, he's a guy that has the track record to show that successful teams will defend. I think he could get something out of Kuzma. I think he's got the tools to, to be a good defender. Can he do it? That's a question. Offensively, like you said, he could he could create on his own. I think if you're talking about a situation where, oh, the Kings are all of a sudden being forced to either go away from Sabonis as a creator or move him off the floor and go Lyles at the five when they're facing small lineups with five shooters on the floor. Well, Kuzma all of a sudden kind of gives you that other playmaker. Now, Kuzma's not as great of a playmaker as, as Sabonis, but you'd be filling in that need a little bit more. You'd be able to make those adjustments. You'd be able to have answers for small lineups. You might be able to push their hand from going away from small lineups to get Sabonis back on the floor, you know? So I think in a lot of ways, his playmaking is, is a key factor in this because I think, especially with those small lineup situations against Sabonis, I think that really brings that into, into the limelight there. I think, like you said, he shoots well from the corners. You're going to want that. He'll run hard to the corners probably and shoot well from there. He's successful from there. Not great from above the break, and I don't think he's a great mid-range shooter, but you'd be kind of getting that ability to get inside, ability to create for himself and maybe for other guys. He's got, again, the tools on defense. He'd be a rebounder. I mean, in a lot of ways, I could see Kuzma working, but it's just about whether or not the Kings are bought into all that. Is all that going to be the case? Because it's, it's, it's easy to say that there's a possibility he could do all that stuff, but is he going to check all those boxes? And do they need him to check all those boxes? 
it's not certain that he'll check all those boxes and it's definitely needed that he checks all those boxes. So it's just up to the Kings at this point, whether they want to do that. And they really have to be sure about it because they can't just go for Kuzma because there's nothing else. You can't just take a swing because you need to take a swing. That's just, that's not picking your spots. That could prove to be silly. But if they do their due diligence, like I said, I could see Kuzma working out well and helping this team out a lot. Obviously, I don't think it would help the defense as much as a Siakam trade. But thinking about some of those other factors, seeing the fact that he could actually help the defense more than people imagine, seeing what he could do for the offense and the matchups and the ability to counteract different strategies that teams use against the Kings that can sometimes make the Kings offense as good as it was a year ago and as good as it has been at different times this season. Uh, it can make it look one-dimensional when you can you know, bother the, the things that they do well. So I think Kuzma kind of gives you an out there, and I think he could really help out the team and give you a boost, but it's just a question of whether the Kings believe that because it's not certain. You know, It could easily be a, a risk not worth taking and uh, be kind of a, a hasty move just because you couldn't get Siakam or Ananobi or any of these other guys. So it's tricky. It is tricky, and that's why McNair gets paid the big bucks, right? Because this is, I mean, this is exactly like a situation. It seems like a reachable player or an obtainable player. You get, I mean, I think Washington's asking for two first-rounders. I don't think anyone's going to give up two first-rounders for Kuzma. And he's like just good enough where I would be okay. And with his contract length, too, and his age, you'd be okay giving up a first-rounder for him and other pieces. Uh, so this is definitely a thinker for McNair, and I mean, I mean, you presented a lot of good points. He's just kind of a risk at that at the end of the day. Like if if he doesn't do all that stuff, then I mean, will it pay off in the long run? So, yeah, you have to be certain, and and it's one of those things too where it's like, you now you probably won't have to give up two first round picks to get Kuzma because. Washington needs to move them. They got nothing going on yeah. there. They're, they're going to have trouble moving pool. They need to get the money off the books. They need to start anew because they're just setting themselves back more and more. They set themselves back by giving Kuzma that deal and going and trading for pool. I mean, yeah. you know, all factors considered. Is, the takeaway, I guess, is that Washington is going nowhere. They need to move him. And moving Jones, getting some money off the books, getting a few assets. And getting, you know, and they don't have a point guard. I mean, like we, we talk about Davion Mitchell and like who really wants Mitchell, a young point guard. Well, guess what? The two point guards on Washington are Tyus Jones on an expiring contract and our old friend DeLon Wright, who's probably, I don't know how old now, <laughs> but I mean, definitely not someone you're trying to build your franchise with. So, I mean... I'm not saying Mitchell's perfect for them, but at least he's a young guy and he's shown promise in this league. And for a rebuilding team, I mean, why not? Exactly. Why and not? also, this is a team that has not shown any defensive upside at all yeah, over the last few years. You're exactly. getting a point of attack defender, change of scenery for him, former lottery pick, could easily, you know, I mean, one of the things Ham pointed out about Davion Mitchell that is just a good summation of some of his issues is that when you have a situation where Sabonis is the guy that you run the offense through, it really doesn't allow Davion to show off his offensive strengths. And we've pointed that out. It's not just Sabonis either. I mean, all of last season, you saw Davion Mitchell have the ball less in his hands because Monk was proving that he's so good. There's just with Sabonis and Monk, and then obviously even with Fox, uh, but all three of them combined, it just sets up a situation where. Davion Mitchell can't do what he wants to do and what he thrives on offensively. Why not? I mean, he can prove he can do that. He can initiate some 
some penetrations and start building up confidence in being a point guard that can play uh, both ends and maybe even start for them going forward. I mean, why not? I think that mm-hmm. that's a key key piece. And even if you included someone like Kevin Herter, I mean, Herter's still fairly young. You'd be getting a good shooter. You'd be getting a guy that you could help your offense out with. I mean, that could get redundant. I mean, if they knew they could move pool somehow in the, between now and the end of next summer, you know, maybe that would open up their their want for Herter. But I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know about Herter. I think Herter is an option for them for sure, I guess is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That whole that whole thing with with Washington, not only could be like an easily made out deal, it could really help you. But again, the Kings have to be certain that that's the case. And who knows where they're at on that? Who knows what their line of thinking is on that? Yeah, it I, there, it seems like the most realistic at this point among the bigger names, <laughs> bigger. So we'll see. But definitely an interesting yeah. name because it it could pay off in like very well. If this all works out, Kuzma has the tools to do it. And it's, you know, just builds into that, uh, like the core. I mean, he would be added right to it, being on a contract for three more years after this season. Perfect. On a declining deal, too. I mean, it just kind of sweetens it. So at 28 years old, too. Yeah, exactly. Just a year, year older than Sabonis, I think. Or Sabonis 26, 27. I forget. I think Sabonis is, I think he's 27. Okay. But. But I mean, off of that, just kind of going to one last topic for today and going back to that James Ham appearance on Michael Scotto's podcast, another topic that they covered was uh, Malik Monk's free agency, which is pending and coming up this offseason as his contract expires. He's clearly having a terrific year, but you know, you're looking at a situation where he's going to be commanding a lot of money on the market. I mean, he's really, 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 really good. And James Ham noted that from his math, based on the current roster and cap, the best the Kings could give Malik Monk is $17 million a year with an 8% raise each year, which would equal about a four-year $78 million deal. Something Ham said, had the Kings offered him prior to last season, would have been a deal that Monk clearly would have make, made. Now, I don't think the Kings had as much financial flexibility to do that. And while they may have definitely had an idea that Monk was going to be this impact player for the Kings in terms of playmaking, scoring, and everything he's doing, they definitely had some idea of that, but they were not certain that that was going to be the case. I mean, if they knew it was going to be like this, they probably would have done what they needed to do to give him that four-year $78 million deal. But he has since outplayed that. And as Ham notes, he's played to a level that could could feasibly earn him 25 to $30 million a year from a team that wants to make him their starting point guard and give him the keys to the offense. I 100% agree with Ham there. Now, one of the things that this leads me to is we're talking about a, you know potential trade targets. And we mentioned, well, would the Kings go after Brogdon? Would that set up a situation where maybe, I mean, you could start Brogdon maybe, but also you could start Monk and bring Brogdon in as a sixth man. Or we're talking about this Kuzma trade that could potentially also include Tyus Jones. And you could you know, in in the process of making that deal, you could move Monk into the starting lineup if you were to get rid of Herter or move on from Herter in some other form and have Tyus Jones fill in as that six man. There's just a lot of routes that point to the idea that maybe the Kings should be thinking about starting Monk or maybe through some of the trades that they're going to make, they're going to be forced to kind of go with that route. And maybe I think with the fact that he's going to be getting paid a lot more money, don't you think that maybe starting him kind of helps you not only pull him in 
on a deal next season that's maybe, you know, not top dollar, but definitely he's going to be commanding over $20 million. I mean, if you're giving him more starting minutes and whatnot, that might be a little bit more appealing to him. And also, if he's a starter, you might be able to better rationalize paying him 20, 21, 22, maybe $23 million a year. You know what I mean? How much does starting Monk help in that? And is it something they should be seriously looking at? <sighs> That's such a good question. I don't know. A lot of people want to start Monk. I'm on the, you know, keep Monk off the bench train just because he, he provides such an important spark off the bench that you it, you do need. I, I, I get it. People are like, it doesn't matter. And they make points where it's like, it doesn't matter about starting or not. It matters about closing games. Great. It is true. But you also can't have no one scoring off the bench <laughs> at the same time. You know, he's a great scorer off the bench and not everyone is. A lot of people are just better with the better players in the starting lineup. They get more opportunities to score that way when you're with Sabonis more or with Fox more. You make a good point to start him you know, to rationalize that a little more, but I don't know. I personally, I, I don't want Monk starting. I want him coming off the bench. I think that's where he's at his best. I, I just, I, I don't, I don't think he would make that same impact. I think he'll play at the same level, but it's that those minutes you get off the bench from him that make him and Herter such a good one, two punch. You get Monk as a starter and your shooting guard off the bench just isn't as, you know, he just doesn't, he's not as good as Herter, I guess, as a starter. I don't know. It's kind of weird to compare, but, and then at the same time, you're also going to lose defense. I mean, he's shorter than Fox. Yeah. I mean, he's six one, if that is <laughs> a shooting guard, very athletic and stuff. But I mean, you, you definitely use, lose size and defense and, and again, which makes him perfect off the bench. Cause he's kind of like just that combo guard off the bench at that point. And, can kind of fill in and provide some scoring and provide great scoring down the stretch. I mean, starting games and whatnot, I mean, obviously he makes a big difference in terms of what he brings off the bench. And that's a key point. But that's also under the context that the Kings don't have anybody else that can do that. That is true. If the Kings did, a lot of this does contingent on what kind of trades the Kings make. So if the Kings were to get somebody like Brogdon, Tyus Jones, or somebody else that could fill that, primary guard off the bench be a legitimate six man brogdon won six man of the year last year tyus jones finished sixth or fifth just behind monk in voting so you'd be filling that hole and you'd be getting monk in there so i mean in terms of the biggest argument for keeping monk off the bench which is that he's such a great six man i mean if he's such a great six man, you can get another six man to replace him. Why not just start him? Now, obviously, the defensive aspect of things really plays into thing. And that's another thing that's contingent on are the Kings going to have an upgrade? Because if, you know, starting Monk with Fox, Murray, Barnes, and Sabonis doesn't sound as good. I mean, as versatile as Harrison Barnes is, I think when you have Monk in the starting lineup, you know, and he gives some good efforts and he's had some good moments this season. I think he's shown some improvement defensively, but he still has deficiencies that surface every game, once or twice, maybe three times a game due to his size and lack of length. So with Barnes out there, he's not good enough of a defender to kind of counteract that. But if you were, again, a lot of this is contingent on trades and it's hard to kind of hypothesize who exactly would be there. But if you had more size, the versatility, and just better defense from the starting four, 
you are all of a sudden kind of more willing to make that move mm-hmm. to start Monk. At least, no, you're opinion. right. You're right. And and you have you have the playmaking and everything like that. I mean, if you as long as you have that other playmaker coming off the bench, mm-hmm. there's a world where starting Monk could be the best possible scenario. I think that would have to kind of come through the process of trades, but. Unless he takes a pay cut with the Kings, and he very well may take some kind of a pay cut with the Kings to play with Fox, to play it under a coach and with a franchise that really allowed him to show his full range of skill. You know, maybe he does take that pay cut, but also maybe not. I mean, he's a guy that wears Balenciaga a lot. He's a guy that <laughs> lives a lavish lifestyle. Isn't he dating a celebrity? I don't know if he still is. Like, I, I was looking this up the other day, and it said Malik Monk was dating Iggy Azalea. I guess they went on some dates back in L.A. when he was with the Lakers. But there are some reports saying that he is still dating her, and it's very under the radar. But I feel like it's hard to believe. Like, I feel like we would have heard about okay. this by now. But still, I mean, he still dated her. But anyways, I mean, maybe this is just kind of conjecture, but just as much as you could sit here and hope that he's going to take a pay cut to stay with the Kings, play with his best friend, and have the good story, there's just as much of a possibility, given the fact this is a business and this is this man's livelihood and his life economically going forward and his his children's lives going forward feasibly, you know, he could very well easily just go for the money and he would not be wrong to do that. So, again, starting him rationalizes the amount of money you'd be paying him a little bit better than paying a six-man that much money. And, you know, if you're giving him that starting job, of course, it's not the keys to the offense, but it does give him a little bit more reason to stay. Like, oh, your role is going to be elevated a little bit more. You're going to be starting. Everybody wants to start, you know. I think there's there's something too. I'm not sold on this being the fact, and again, it's contingent on whether or not the Kings can make certain moves and upgrade at certain places. I mean, if if all that could work out, I mean, I think it's 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 definitely an option and something that would I think in a lot of ways play towards the Kings' favor in keeping Monk because when you think about the Kings as it stands now, we're talking about you know, I mean, a year ago it was like oh this core with like Herder there and even having like a Barnes as a veteran. Like this core going forward can really grow and do stuff together. Well, clearly that's not going to happen. And when you look at what the Kings have in terms of a core, in terms of guys that are untouchable or nearly untouchable, you got untouchables in Sabonis, Fox, and Murray, and then nearly untouchables in Monk and Lyles. Unless you really believe you can upgrade your roster with multiple other players or another similar impact player, you have to be considering the fact that Malik Monk is so important to this team. He's so important to what you have now in terms of what can make a difference today. And in the in the coming years, yeah, it, it's people don't realize that. Like, I don't like when people call Monk untouchable. It's like he's on an expiring deal, and they're like, yeah, he's with Fox yeah. and stuff, and he's great. He's very important. But I mean, if he's if you're not con- certain you can resign him, it sounds like they are like kind of like seventy five percent positive that they can. But if you're not, and like if you can walk, like. You know, I, I wouldn't put him in that untouchable realm with the three and Murray, Fox, and Sabonis. But but you definitely want to keep him. I mean, right. and like you said, if you can keep him by giving, starting him and, you know, give him an, giving him a little more shine that way, then in justifying that 22 you're going to have to spend on him a year, then sure. You can definitely see a point. It raises the question, too, where it's like, okay, well, if you're not going to do that and if you're not really certain that you're going to sign him and you're really looking – you know, in the mirror here and going, we need to make a pretty big impact move. I mean, does that, why would, then that would put 
Monk in a position to where he's That's, very tradable. Yeah. I mean, given the right move, I don't think no. they would just do it, but that would make him That's very That's a good tradable. point. If they don't... That would definitely move him out of that nearly... That's a good point. Realm. That is a great point. If they don't want to pay him that big bucks, then... I mean, why not? I don't know. I mean, I don't want... I'm not a guy who wants to trade Monk. I really like Monk. I think everyone does. Fan favorite. Provides such... He plays such an important role on this team. But, I mean, he's on an expiring deal, and these discussions have to be had, unfortunately. And they're probably already happening in the front office. And I'd be upset if they weren't. (laughs) And the fact that he is so good, the fact that he is such a joy to watch, I mean... I mean, he produces highlight plays seemingly every week that seems to just draw eyes. I mean, that's not only good for your team, but that's kind of good for exposure and business in a lot of ways. I mean, there's a lot of ways to look at how valuable he is. So I think a lot of a lot of what could uh, do wonders in terms of securing his spot on this team going forward might be found in starting him. But again, that's contingent on trades and whatnot. But it's a conversation worth having at this point. And there's a lot of things to talk about in terms of Malik Monk and his pending free agency and the contract that he's setting himself up to earn. Yeah. Definitely something to think about on the near horizon with the trade deadline and his contract expiring at the end of the season. Marge, the Kings have to make a move. <laughs> but looking I ahead. Did they can win with this roster. Call me. I told you. you know, Kevin Harder can't defend. Just, just Maggie can defend better than Kevin Herter. No, but Marge, she's only twelve, or how old she is. I don't know. I think she's eight. Eight. Oh no, Maggie. Maggie's like a baby. She's like one. Oh, oh I just say Maggie. My bad. Yeah, Maggie. Maggie's a baby. Well, don't quit your day job. Your day job. Well. <laughs> <laughs> Looking forward. It's like every four weeks, I'm just going to do stupid impressions to see if I have made any improvements. Yeah, you should. But I think my stock is falling in that regard. <laughs> well, uh, like I try to say five times now, looking forward, um, before you interrupt me with those terrible impressions, the Kings play the Pacers tonight. No Tyrese Halliburton. Uh, I don't think Siakam will play, but I don't know. Right, we'll see. It just seems like a one-day turnaround is a little too short notice, but... Say that to Sabonis. That is true. He played, yeah, he like a one or two day. So we'll see. I'm not sure. But there's definitely no Halliburton in his only game in Sacramento this season. So it'll be fun to watch nonetheless. And hopefully they can snap this three-game losing streak. Uh, Anything to wrap it up, John? Marge? Are the Kings going to beat the Pacers? Are they going to light the bean? No. Okay. All right. I'm done. <laughs> well, I'm done. I finished. Well, I think that wraps it up for us, folks. As always, Homer, Homer, the Kings aren't very good. You can't come around here anymore. The Kings suck. Just Mo. He doesn't like the beam. Okay. You know, like the Mo one wasn't any better. Yeah, uh, that might have been your worst. You should can you do the Maggie sucking. Maggie sucking. <laughs> and it came out. What what kind of show are you watching, Tony? <laughs> the Pimpsons. Jesus, I mean, what is going on with you? Oh my goodness, it's a family. I don't think you were. Watch- I don't think the Simpsons are available on that website. I think you- I think that's a different website, Tony. Okay. Well. As always, I want to thank you for tuning in, and until next time. Tony, she's just a baby! Why would you say that? Have a good one.
All right, my homer is kind of going. 